Well, please open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 5. As you do that, um, now this morning, you'll see in the news sheet that uh, I'll be away on holidays for the next two weeks. And so the family is looking forward to that. Um, over the next three Sundays, we have three guest uh, preachers. Uh, next week, we have uh, uh, Graham. He'll be uh, coming to speak to us. Uh, he lives in Druin, but he's uh, just finished his... Uh, his associate pastoral role down um, in Melbourne at one of the Fika churches down in uh, Carlton. And uh, so I've gotten to know him over the past couple of conferences and so we look forward to having him come and speak. Uh, That's Graham Lowe. And um, following week, Nathan uh, will be preaching for us. And then the week after that, uh, Steve Adams is uh, coming down to preach the previous pastor here at the church. He's uh, coming down for the weekend and offered to... Uh, to fill in for the week so that was uh, lovely so it'll be a great opportunity to catch up with him again we know he's uh, uh, serving at a church another Fika church up in Toowoomba Uh, so he's been there for the past couple of years so it'll be great to catch up with him again so today we're in Mark 5 Uh, last time we were in Mark's gospel Uh, we were at the end of chapter 4 and there I explained that from chapter 4, verse 35, uh, through to the end of chapter 5, uh, we see a, a series of events in which Jesus displays his divine lordship. Uh, when Jesus calmed the storm, he showed he was the master of the sea. And today, we'll learn that Jesus is master of the supernatural. So we're going to begin our time this morning by reading chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. The word of God says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with the stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been 
had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marvelled. Well, the purpose of Mark's Gospel, as we know, is to help his readers then and now understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Up until this moment, Jesus has displayed his divine personhood and power in casting out many demons and in silencing them from proclaiming his identity and hindering his earthly ministry. Well, the historical event in our passage this morning is one of the most vivid and detailed demonstrations of Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. This is no clash of equals. It is an absolute whitewash. We're left in no doubt as to the nature and power of Christ. But while this is the primary focus of the passage, there are other important things to see as well. It gives us an incredible picture of human depravity. As we see the crowd cast out Jesus, despite the clear evidence before their faces of his miraculous power. It shows us the merciful nature of God. It also gives us clear warrant for evangelism. Such a rich passage and I pray the spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to understand its depths as we study it right now so let's get straight into this passage and in verses one to five it begins with the demonic possession verse one they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes now Luke has the same reference in his account and specifies in Luke chapter 8, verse 26, that it's opposite Galilee. Galilee being the region that runs to the western shore of the inland sea. There's a city that's located southeast of the Sea of Galilee called Gerasa. It's possible that Mark and Luke are taking that city as a reference point uh, to speak of the whole area that extends up the eastern side of the sea. However, in in 1970, uh, ruins were discovered on the eastern side of the lake. And this archaeological site is known as Kersey or Gersa. Uh, But it's been identified as the ancient town of Gergesa. Since the 3rd century, Christians have identified this place as the exact location where Jesus' boat landed. So it's also possible that when Mark... And Luke speak of the country of the Gerasenes, it's simply a derivative of the name of this ancient lakeside town. Now in Matthew's account, he says that the event happened in the country of the Gardarians. That's Matthew 8, 28. But this is easily understood as a reference to the region looked after by the town of Gadara, which was located between the sea and the bigger town of Gerasa, which was further south. So there's no error here. The gospel writers are just using different reference points to speak of the same area. 
One of the reasons the early church identified the location where Jesus landed uh, was that in the hills overlooking the shore of Gagessa, there were caves that had been used as tombs. And you can see the pictures for yourself if you go and look it up on the internet later. It's from these tombs in the hills that the man raced down after seeing Jesus' boat coming up to the beachhead. In Matthew's account, he also tells us that there were actually two demon-possessed men who came down the hill to see Jesus. However, Mark and Luke simply choose to focus on the one whom Jesus has more verbal interaction with. So again, there's no error or contradiction in these texts. It's interesting that the previous day, Jesus had been accused by the scribes of doing his work by the power of an unclean spirit. That's what brought about his grave warning back in Mark 3, verses 29 to 30. Jesus said, Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. When confronted with the scribes' accusation that he did his work by an unclean spirit, Jesus refutes that in like manner, saying it was by the Holy Spirit that he did his work. Now, he wasn't denying his own work. Jesus was truly God and truly man, but he was just simply emphasising the Spirit's work. And what a contrast to see one who is filled by the Holy Spirit and one who is filled with an unholy spirit. Really, there's no getting the two confused. This event on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee shows how deep the hardness of the Jewish leaders' hearts went in their refusal to believe who Jesus was or to acknowledge who Jesus was. We've read four chapters so far of Mark's Gospel that describe the life and nature of Jesus, the one filled with the Holy Spirit. Just look at the stark difference when compared to this poor soul filled with an unclean spirit. So verse 3 begins, He lived among the tombs. So he didn't just come down from the tombs. The tombs were where he lived. He had no abode among the living, but sheltered among the dead. The man with the unclean spirit lived among unclean corpses. And his reason for being there is explained in the rest of verse 3 and then verse 4. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. So his, his behaviour was extraordinarily erratic. Matthew 8.28, we're told that the conduct on that morning was so fierce that no one could pass that way. It had caused such fear in the townspeople that they tried to bind him. And not just once, but often. Yet these attempts were futile. The demonic influence gave him such strength that Mark says he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. Now keep in mind how that verse finishes. No one had the strength to subdue him. That's a statement that should cause us to think hard when we see the actions of Jesus. No one had the strength to subdue this man, really? Well, that makes it all the more marvellous when we see that Jesus does before we get there though verse 5 finishes the description of the possessed man's torment 
Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is a walking image of the destructive nature of Satan and his demons. Satan lures people with the promise of abundant life, but he is the father of lies and seeks only to steal, kill and destroy. Now Christians need not fear that we could ever be possessed by a demonic power. We have the blessing of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Romans 8 verse 9, the Apostle Paul tells us, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So having the indwelling Holy Spirit is part and parcel of being a Christian. Every person upon initial belief in Christ is baptised through the Spirit into union with Christ and is indwelt by that same Holy Spirit. There are no haves and have-nots in the kingdom of God. And yet, while God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, as we're told in Colossians chapter 1, nevertheless, we are to be ever vigilant to set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, as per Colossians 3. We've been freed from bondage to sin, but we can still be tempted by sin. Paul tells us at the end of the letter to Ephesians that there is a spiritual battle going on that we must be prepared for every day. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, that apostle exhorts believers to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We must see the devil's promises for the promise of death that they really are. And if we're ever tempted by Satan's siren song, there is no better illustration of his destructive purposes than witnessing the life of this soul that Jesus met on the water's edge. This is the fruit of Satan's work. But having now introduced this demonic possession, it's time to witness the divine power. The divine power of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So in verse 6 we read, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. From his home in the mountain tombs, the man and his sullied companion spied Jesus and his disciples coming to ashore and immediately ran down the hill. Mark tells us that the man fell down before Jesus. And the word translated is the same translated elsewhere as worshipped. However, the reverence shown to Jesus here is well, it didn't stem from repentance and faith, but it rather came from fear and terror. Some hold that it was the possessed man who was worshipping Jesus and pleading for his merciful assistance. But the conversation that directly ensues is between Jesus and the demon, which you can see from verse 7, which says this, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In the beginning stages of 
Jesus' Galilean ministry, he encountered a demon-possessed man in the Capernaum synagogue. In that instance, the people had no idea the man was possessed. And so it shows that the destructive nature of demons does not necessarily manifest itself in the same way. However, at the sight of Jesus, that demon could not restrain himself, could not remain hidden. And he called out there in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, the demonic presence Jesus encounters here in Mark 5 responds the same way. The demon knows exactly who Jesus is and he cowers before him. Jesus, this demon knows, is the eternal Son of God through whom all things were created including this angel who had fallen in league with Satan sometime after the first week of creation. And this demon also knows that Jesus is the one who would judge him and cast him into eternal torment. We read of the final judgment of demons several places in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of the end-time separation of the sheep and the goats, that is, the the believers from the unbelievers. And from his throne, Jesus will declare to the unbelievers, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So who is Jesus? He is the Son of the Most High God. This is a title that's seen many places in Scripture and it emphasises the absolute sovereign control that God wields over his whole creation. Genesis 14 verse 19, the priest Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abram saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Well, Jesus declared in John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. So as the Father is, so is the Son, the sovereign Lord and judge of all creation. When the demon announces Jesus' identity, he actually voiced what was in the thoughts of the apostles in the wee hours of that morning. In Mark 4 verse 41, we're told that the disciples in the boat were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? For those who believe in Jesus, this is marvellous news. But for the demons, it's terrible news. And the demon before Jesus now feared that the final judgment had come upon him and he pleaded for more time. Now, Mark 5 verse 8 tells us, that the reason the demon began crying out directly to Jesus was because he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. A superficial reading of this text might suggest there was a bit of a tussle going on between Jesus and the demon. But the demon's own acknowledgement that Jesus was the son of the most high God shows this not to be the case at all. The reason Jesus allows this momentary pause is for the disciples looking on for us reading it today as future readers to realize just how powerful that demon was so that it may be seen clearly just how powerful jesus is so jesus allowed the demon's response and to that we read in verse 9 jesus asked him what is your name 
The demon then replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion, as many would know, is a military term. In the first century, a Roman legion was a gathering of about 6,000 infantrymen and times included cavalry as well. Here we understand that the demon who has been speaking to Jesus is merely a representative of a much larger cohort of evil. Here we understand the extent then of this man's suffering. And here we understand why no one in the town had the strength to subdue him. Here we understand the divine power of Christ Jesus. Well, after identifying the degree of evil dwelling in the man, we read in verse 10 that the representative demon begged him, begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Luke specifies in chapter 8 verse 31 that the demons begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They knew Jesus could have sent them straight to hell and they plead to stay where they are. Now should we see Jesus' action as a sign of mercy to the demons? Absolutely not. Rather, we should see what follows as Jesus permitting the demons to further reveal their destructive nature and to reveal the spiritual condition of the townsfolk. As we read this passage 2,000 years after it took place, we're left in no doubt where the true power lies and where true life is found. So from verse 11... Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. The fact that the pigs suddenly rushed down the bank like lemmings and jumped into the sea to their deaths is proof that the man was not suffering from either a physical disorder or a spiritual sin of his own. He didn't have a disorder, he had a demon. In fact, he had lots of demons. The amount of pigs testifies to that. See, while demons are spirit beings, fallen angels, they're not omnipresent. They can't be in more than one place at one time. One demon did not possess all those pigs. Many demons did. In modern times, however, perceptions about animal rights have caused many to question the moral character of Jesus, the moral quality of Jesus' character. In the first half of the 20th century, uh, Bertrand Russell was a famous philosopher and critic of religion, especially of Christianity. In his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, he questions the morality of Jesus, ultimately because Jesus believed in hell. How could a moral person believe such a thing? But there were other reasons too. Let me just quote. There is the instance of the Gardarene swine where it certainly was not very kind to the pigs to put devils into them and make them rush down the hill to the sea. You must remember that he was omnipotent and he could have made the devils simply go away, but he chooses to send them into the pigs. Well, he then goes on to say, I cannot myself feel that either in matter of wisdom or in matter of virtue, Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. I think I should put Buddha and Socrates above him in those respects. End quote. But is that legitimate to question Jesus' morality from this text? No. 
Let's just note a couple of things, and I'm indebted to John MacArthur's commentary for some of these observations. Number one, Jesus did not kill the pigs. The demons did. Seems fairly obvious. In fact, Jesus did not even command the demons to enter the pigs. He simply permitted them to do so. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. Now, interestingly, this historical event event serves as an apt illustration for the question of how God can be both sovereign and yet at the same time remain righteous when sin occurs in the world. Christ sovereignly permitted the demons to go into the pigs, but the demons killed the pigs. The demons were responsible for the destruction, but Jesus permitted that to happen that the divine purposes would come to fulfilment. To blame Jesus for the death of the pigs is equivalent of blaming God when any bad thing happens. While we might not understand how God is working for good, we need to trust his word, which tells us that he is working for good. Secondly, the pigs, we need to understand, were being raised to be killed and eaten for food. So their death in the water simply kind of sped up the inevitable. And the herdsmen, no doubt, went down to the water's edge and and dragged most of the carcasses back and then prepared them for sale. Thirdly, only humans are made in the image and likeness of God, not animals. So it's decidedly wrong to give them the same value. If we're more concerned about the death of the pigs than the freedom from bondage experienced by this man, then we are blinded to the value that God places on human life. Fourthly, the casting of the demons into the pigs gave the demons the chance to clearly reveal their destructive nature. We are blinded to the devastation that Satan and his demons seek to cause in this world if we're caught up thinking about the pigs and moreover we're blinded to the fact that the immense power of the demons is subdued in a word by the divine power of christ now that point is not missed on the townsfolk who come out to see jesus after reports reach their ears But instead of welcoming him, rejoicing in what he's done and rejoicing with this man whom they know that he's finally been set free from this demonic oppression, instead of all of this, fear sets in as they realize the scope of Christ's power. So in our third point this morning, we see the dreadful panic. The herdsmen who just witnessed their pigs run headlong into the water, they took flight immediately and they raced into town to tell everyone about it. They told it in the city and in the country. They told everyone they found. And it caused such a stir that people came to see what it was that had happened. Now just note that when the people arrive, they're not angry. There's no sense here that the people were concerned about any moral issue with the death of the pigs. They weren't concerned about any financial issue with the the loss of possible revenue. No, they came to Jesus and with him was the man who had uh, formerly terrorized the region, now calmly sitting at Jesus' feet, and they are afraid. 
They recognise straight away that someone more powerful than they've ever thought possible is standing right in front of them in the person of Jesus. I mean, how else could the man have been delivered from the demons? And they notice the stark difference in the man. Three things stand out for them. First, he's sitting. He's not cutting himself with stones. He's not crying out in suffering and torment. No, he's just quietly sitting there. Secondly, he's clothed. In Luke's account, he tells us that for a long time the man had worn no clothes. But now here he is, dressed. He's respectable once more. The third thing is that he's in his right mind. Balance has been restored to this man. He's able to think clearly. The word translated means having God-defined balance, to be well-balanced from God's perspective. In the book of Titus, this is the same virtue that the Apostle Paul expects of elders in chapter 1. And then he sets as a command for all believers within chapter 2. This fact coupled with the posture of the man sitting before Jesus, the posture of a disciple, shows that the man experienced more than a physical transformation. He experienced the spiritual transformation of his soul. Although it's not recorded for us, it seems the logical conclusion that after Jesus healed the man, he spoke the gospel to him. And the man believed and experienced true deliverance. In the early hours of the morning, the apostles on the boat experienced the calm of the waters. Well, now this man experienced the calm of his own soul. But while this man quietly sits there, the crowd is in a right state of panic. Verse 16, we're told that while the people were looking back and forth between Jesus and the formerly possessed man, the herdsmen begin to recount once more the events they'd just witnessed. There is no doubt about what has happened. There are eyewitnesses to the fact. There's the evidence of the man himself sitting there, clothed in his right mind. There's no conclusion that could be reached other than that Jesus possesses power of extraordinary might. But does it cause them to fall down in worship? No, it does not. The demons beg Jesus to allow them to stay in the region. The people beg Jesus to leave their region. And this rejection of Jesus shows that it takes more than witnessing a miraculous event to lead a person to repentance and faith. Now, I'm not saying that miracles weren't important by any means. I mean, last week, Nathan preached from the purpose statement of John's gospel, which the apostle wrote in chapter 20. Verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John recorded Jesus' miracles, or at least some of them, so that we could read them as signs which point us to the identity of Jesus. He called people to read and to see and to believe. But John understood that more needs to happen for someone to believe than witnessing or reading about the miracles of Christ. For true faith to occur, there needs to be an internal 
an initial internal miracle in the heart of a sinner. That is the new birth, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. In John 3, Jesus himself says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless the Spirit brings about this new birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there were two main periods when miracles were prevalent. In the days of Moses and Joshua, in the days of Elijah and Elisha. How many miraculous displays did the Israelites witness during these times? And yet, they were still sent into exile. When the people stood before Jesus that day and begged him to leave... They were doing so while looking directly at the evidence of Christ's divine power. They were like the hard soil in the parable Jesus told the crowds the day before. Friends, let us never underestimate the bondage that unredeemed sinners are in. It takes the initial internal work of the Spirit to bring about regeneration. But as we preach the word faithfully to those around us, we have assurance that God is powerful to overcome the most stubborn heart and he will do that to the hearts of all his elect in due course. We are called to remain faithful in prayer and in preaching the word and trusting God with the results. You know, the, number, the numbers of people who respond are not a valid test. Only the nature of people's response. If it were a numbers game, then we might think Jesus' work that morning was a bit of a fizzle. Only one guy responded. Is that it? It's not going to make the news. But that one guy had a divine appointment with Christ that morning. We ask, why did Jesus come all the way across the sea? Answer, for that one guy. In the parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd left the 99 to go walking in search of the one. For that man that sat before Jesus that morning, the shepherd had just crossed the raging sea to come and find him. When you think about the salvation that Christ has given you, I pray you would find immense encouragement that the shepherd sought you out too. If you do not know Christ as Lord and Saviour, then I pray that you would see here the shepherd's heart and turn and embrace him. Don't be like the crowd who saw him and rejected him. You've seen him today as we've read the scriptures. Don't reject him any longer. Now, just like Jesus did with the demon, he allows their request and he leaves the area. But as we turn to the last few verses, we see there is one more request. A request that Jesus actually denies. But it's a denial that leads to the dutiful proclamation of the gospel. Jesus permitted the demons to go into the pigs. The demons destroyed the pigs. But it demonstrated his divine power in overcoming that evil cohort with a few simple words. Jesus permitted the people to drive him away from the region. They responded to his power in fear and disbelief. But it demonstrated the hardness of their hearts and their need for an internal miracle. Now we come to the man himself, and he requests that Jesus might take him with him. But why does Jesus not permit him to do so? Well, it's certainly not for lack of the man's sincerity. The words Mark uses describes the man's request. 
Oh, sorry, the words Mark uses to describe the man's request are a true sign of discipleship. He begged him that he might be with him. If you recall, this was part of the reason Jesus appointed the twelve, so that they might be with him. It's Mark 3, verse 14. And so here is a man who is like the good soil, in which the seed of the gospel has taken root and is already producing fruit. There are at least two reasons for Jesus denying the man his request. And the first is, we see Jesus reply to him, Go home to your friends. Now he says more than this, but let's not miss this to begin with. The man had lived in isolation for some time now, and in depraved conditions. He was naked and in the tombs. And it's true he had another lost companion with him, but I don't think you'd really class another demon-possessed man as good company. The only time he saw others was when they tried once more to chain him up. When Jesus calls the man to go home to his friends, what we see is a wonderful picture of restoration to fellowship. Jesus truly comes to bring life. As we said, there is more here. So secondly, we see that Jesus commissions the man to become a witness for him. Jesus said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, a few moments ago, I spoke of the importance of God working an internal miracle in the hearts of sinners. Jesus himself spoke of this many times during his ministry. And yet, we also recognize the importance of evangelism. The Holy Spirit regenerates people's hearts in conjunction to them hearing the word that he has inspired. That's why we're not to be ashamed of the gospel. God does not save people apart from the hearing but apart from hearing the word of the gospel. Prior to the final scriptures being written, there were times when God spoke directly to people. We think of Abram, for instance, or the Apostle Paul. But just let's just consider Paul for a moment. Did he expect that what happened to him on the road to Damascus was the general way God worked, and that we should ever expect God to do that again? Well, no, he did not. In Romans 10, verse 17, he declared... Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so it's the duty of the church to proclaim the word of Christ. That is the good news. We know the great commission Christ gave to the apostles and by extension to all the church. That is to go into the world and make disciples by teaching them about Christ. Every Christian is to be ready to share the gospel. Every Christian is to be prayerfully seeking opportunity to speak the gospel. In looking at the words Jesus told this man, there was, there was also a personal aspect to it. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. Well, here's the value of personal testimony, of how the Lord has expressed his love and mercy to you. And yet we must be ever diligent in the way that we speak, that we are truly sharing the gospel. This week I was listening to a reformed pastor from a church in Zambia, and he was lamenting on the fact that many on the African continent are being duped by the prosperity gospel. They're being told, come to Christ for deliverance from marriage problems. Come to Christ for deliverance from financial difficulties, or or come to Christ for deliverance from health issues. 
But but that's not the gospel at all, is it? The gospel is the person and the work of Jesus Christ to save sinners from the wrath of God through faith in him alone. When Jesus cast the demons out of that man, that was not his full deliverance. That only occurred when he repented of his sin and trusted in Christ as Lord and Saviour. Only then was he delivered from the from the even greater horror of the wrath of God. So share your testimonies testimonies with people. Absolutely share them. Tell of what the Lord has done for you. But do not neglect to speak about the greatest mercy you have received in the forgiveness of your sins through faith in the only Saviour, Jesus Christ. Now, in the final verse of this passage, Mark explains that the man faithfully fulfilled his commission. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Note how in the previous verse, Jesus commissioned the man to tell others what the Lord had done for him. And how in this verse, Mark records how the man told the people how much Jesus had done for him. And so we're left in no doubt that the work of the Lord is the work of Jesus. Now, the Decapolis was the Greek name for a group of ten cities uh, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And the region extended north to the sea, north of the sea to Damascus, and then in the south past the city of Gerasa. It was a large territory. It was a Gentile territory. And that accounts for why Jesus was, was less concerned about him being spoken about in these areas than on the western side, which was predominantly Jewish. And of course, aside from that, at that moment, Jesus was being asked to leave on account of who he was. So his ministry in that region could not be any more hindered than it already was. So when Jesus left the Decapolis that day, he had one follower. But this was not the last time Jesus would come to the Decapolis. We learn at the end of Mark 7 and then into chapter 8 that months later, Jesus returned and a great crowd came out to him. He healed many and he fed the 4,000. No doubt others spoke of the events of that first morning in the Decapolis, but Mark clearly gives a great deal of credit to the dutiful proclamation of this one man. A man, in one sense, who prepared the way for the Lord, kind of John the Baptist of the East. Now we, we really have no idea the impact of our simple proclamations. But we are called to be faithful and trust that God will bring about his purposes through it. Sometimes it will feel like no one's listening. Sometimes we may never see the fruit of our endeavours. But that's not what is set before us. As believers in Christ, each one of us is called to faithfully speak the gospel in the areas that God has placed us. For some, that's a call to go overseas. For others, it's a call to remain in the same town your whole life. It it doesn't matter where we are. For wherever we are, God has placed us there. And that is our mission field. So how do we end today? Well, simply with this. Jesus is Lord. He is the Master. Master over the natural realm. Master over the spiritual realm. And as Master, He is benevolent and kind and merciful. So let us believe upon His glorious name. And let us proclaim 
his glorious name.